Right, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. We do this every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. And so if you want to hear what he has to say, open up to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, if you have your own Bible, it's basically in the middle of the Bible. It's right after the Psalms and Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible, there are some black Bibles under the chairs, and we'll be on page 553. Page 553, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And so that means it's filled with proverbs, it's filled with poetry, it's filled with some logical kind of philosophical argumentation. So this is going to be a difficult book. So I want to warn you, it's going to be a tough one, but I think if you hang with us and if we pursue this in faith, we're going to learn some really good lessons out of this book. I have an initial illustration that I think will be helpful to us. Um, it might seem weird to you, but I think this is a very good concrete illustration um, I've got a uh, canister here of bubbles. Any of you ever blown bubbles before? Yeah, okay. I'm going to blow some for you here. Uh, I learned first service, you have to do it slowly. I was blowing too hard and it wasn't working. There we go. So those of you that can see that far, you can see the bubbles. I wish I was able to give every single one of you a canister of bubbles, but that would have been really fun, right? Although it kinda, it's kind of gross and slimy when you get it on your hands. So these bubbles are fun. These bubbles can be especially enjoyable with little kids, right? We, we get old and cynical, and we don't enjoy them as much as older people, but little kids love to chase the bubbles. And when you grab a bubble, though, are you able to hold on to it? No, you're not able to hold on to the bubble, are you? Uh-uh. And that can be frustrating. But that doesn't mean bubbles are terrible and evil, does it? No, but bubbles are still fun. Bubbles are fun, bubbles can be enjoyable, but bubbles are not substantial, and bubbles are not permanent. And that is one of the central visions of this book. There's a Hebrew word, hevel, that is uh, pronounced, uh, well, I just pronounced it hevel, but it's translated in three different ways, in three different versions. I'm actually trying out, I'm taking out for a spin a new translation myself here, got some larger print as well. Um, Trying out a new translation myself, the CSB, and it translates it as futility. Um, the ESV, the Bibles that are under the chairs, that translation translates it as vanity. And then the NIV, one of the famous translations a lot of us, if you're my age, grew up reading, it says meaninglessness. All three of those are translating this Hebrew word havel, which can most literally mean mist or vapor or smoke. So I think bubbles are a really helpful modern understanding of that, of it's something fun and nice yet it lacks substance. It is not permanent. I want you to see that because I think all three of the English ways that we're translating it now in our English Bibles, they're true, they're right, but they can seem a little too negative. The book is not as negative as it seems. <laughs> and so part of what I'm trying to teach you as we go through this book is there are actually some really good, joyful, wonderful things in this book, but it can come across as super cynical and super negative. It's saying that life is good, but it's not enough. Life is good and beautiful, but it's transient. And when you reach out and try to grab it, it's like a bubble. It just pops. It just kind of melts in your hands. Life is going to be quick. It's going to be over before you know it. You're all dying just at different speeds, right? And it's just going to, boom, go by like that. And that gives us wisdom, and that gives us an ability to actually have joy in the little things in life. And so on a first reading, it can be very confusing, but I think as we study this and as we pray that God's Spirit would help us, 
we're going to see some really good and true and beautiful things in this book. So let's read together. We're going to read the first 11 verses, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, or other translations there will say vanity or meaninglessness. Absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Sweet, cheery little lesson for this morning, right? As I said, it can sound cynical, but sometimes these shocking statements press us to realize maybe what I'm investing in is not enough. Maybe I've considered the wrong things in this life to be true treasure, and that can press us. It's painful, but it can press us to treasure the right things. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to understand this today. God, we pray that your word would teach us. We thank you that you speak to us and you haven't just left us wandering in meaninglessness, but you come after us, and we pray that your spirit would enlighten us now, would guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're kind of introducing this new study, um, we're going to follow a little bit the train of thought of those first 11 verses and just look at who wrote the book, what the book is basically about, and why we should study it, okay? Who, what, and why. Simple outline for today. Verse 1 gives us who. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the words of the teacher, some translations say preacher, the words of the teacher, a preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Anybody know who the son of David, king of Jerusalem was? That would have been, the most obvious would have been Solomon. But I need to point out that son of David is also a title used for Jesus, right? And so son of David could really just mean any descendant king from King David. So some authors point out that Solomon might not be the author. So we just want to deal with that because as you guys, I know you're all going to do your homework and go read other things about Ecclesiastes. You're going to come across these teachings that say, well, we don't think Solomon actually wrote Ecclesiastes, even though when you read this and you read later on in verse 12 and then also some of the biographical details, it sure seems like Solomon. So let me just deal for a moment with why people might not think it is Solomon. I actually think it is Solomon, but let's, let's kind of listen to our friends that say it's not Solomon. One thing they say is it was really common in the ancient world to write a book in someone else's name, right? Kind of like we do this today quite often with novels, right? You'll write a novel that could have some really good lessons to learn, and it's about some made-up character named John Smith. And this John Smith guy, you know, David McMurray writes a novel about John Smith, and I kind of put myself in that character, and I write as if he's a real guy, but he's not really a real guy, right? Well, the reverse can happen. You're writing 
in the name of a real person and you're learning lessons from their life, and that happened a lot in the ancient world. So we have that precedent, this could happen, right? Um, the other thing that p people point out is uh, Franz Dalich was a really well-known uh, scholar of Hebrew, German scholar, and Dalich pointed out that some of the words that are used in this book in Hebrew don't fit that context and time period. And so they were just uncommon words. And so a lot of scholars have followed his lead because 100 years ago, he was like the greatest Hebrew scholar ever. And they've said, oh, well, Dalich says it must be true. What's happened, though, is we've learned more about Hebrew since then. And so we've kind of expanded our possibilities of what words they could have used. But also there's this common sense objection to that. And that is the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest, most well-studied man in the history of the ancient Middle East. So it, it makes sense that he would have known words and used words from other civilizations and other regions nearby. Uh, and so linguistically, again, I, I don't think the argument that Solomon was not the author really holds up. I think it just makes sense to take it as it's written. Seems to be saying it was Solomon, especially when you consider as we move into the book, it just talks about all these biographical details that match his life. Wisest man that ever lived. He wrote all these other wise proverbs. Um, he lived this great excess, and it'll talk about that later in Ecclesiastes. So I would say it just makes the most sense to assume, yeah, says it's Solomon for the most part. We'll just assume it's Solomon. Um, but that leads us to another problem. What is that problem? If we're assuming it's Solomon, and we're saying Solomon wrote this, what's the problem with having Solomon write a book in the Bible? Well, he was very wise, and God appeared to him in supernatural visions, and God made promises that he would work uh, made promises to King David that he would work through his children and descendants. So that part we have, you know, positives there. But there's still this problem that Solomon was like one of the skankiest characters in the Bible, right? He was just gross. He just did some nasty stuff. He, he was, he's embarrassing to those of us that are trying to align our lives with God's law and God's morality. We read the life of Solomon, um, all the women he had in his life, um, the slaves that he kept. There are just all kinds of things he did that are just offensive to us as people that are trying to obey the moral law of God. So what do we do with that? Well, I want to not excuse it, number one, but I also want to put it in perspective and say, have you investigated the lives of the other human authors of the Bible? Because they were also pretty bad, right? Solomon might be the worst of all the authors of the Bible, humanly speaking, but the other ones were pretty bad too. Really, Almost all of our heroes in the Bible, I mean, you've got a couple of characters like Joseph and Daniel that seemed pretty good. We don't really have any dirt on them. But all the other heroes of the Bible, they, they did some pretty sinful things. And so we don't want to be disrespectful of our fathers in the faith, but we also want to recognize sin is sin and say, hey, they, they did some wrong things. We don't want to imitate everything they did, right? So you can learn from experience without saying, hey, we should all experience sin so we can learn from experience, right? Someone else can sin and have great problems in their life, and they can tell you, hey, don't, don't do what I did. This didn't really work out well. And I think that's the posture we have as we approach writing from Solomon. We say, okay, he, he learned some hard lessons. Now, when you read 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, those are the parts of the Old Testament that tell us about the life of Solomon. I encourage you to go read those. I'm not going to really read all of that for you, but I encourage you to go read those stories over the next several weeks as we study this. As you read that, there's really no indication in those stories that Solomon repented at the end of his life. I would say if we're holding on to this as being written by Solomon, Ecclesiastes is really the only indication that he did turn back to the Lord. Ecclesiastes seems to be like his 
end of his life reflection saying, man, I really messed some things up. But in, in the end, the only thing that really makes sense is to trust God and walk with him. Kind of like, man, don't make all those, the mistakes I made. And so I think we have to have this humble posture as sinners, listening to other sinners who are speaking by the Spirit of God and giving us guidance on what it means to pursue God and to follow him. 2 Timothy 3 is a passage that gives us hope that we can always pay attention to what Scripture says, even though it was often written by the hands of sinful men. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, it says that we should pay attention to the sacred writings, which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on and says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So all of our sacred writings, we believe, speak to the truth of God, not because the human authors were perfect. They made a lot of mistakes. They did a lot of dumb stuff. And I think that's actually one of the things that helps us when we read the Bible, right? When you get past your kind of primitive Sunday school knowledge where you think the Bible is a bunch of good people you're supposed to imitate, when you actually real, uh, read the Bible, you realize that's not what it is, right? It's not just a bunch of good people to imitate. There are some good things to imitate, but that's not the central message. The central message is that humanity is sinful and we need God's help. That's the central message. So God used sinful people to write these stories, these proverbs, these lessons, these histories, and that's part of what we have here. So as we think about the life of Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, I want to just kind of focus us in on a concrete picture here of one of the last things that Solomon left us. He left us writings in the Bible, but he also built the temple, the temple of God. This is the place where God's people would worship him. I have kind of like a little graph of the temple here, just to get your mind thinking about it. The temple demonstrated a lot of details, a lot of beauty and glory. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And this would have been one of the things that Solomon was most famous for leaving behind, right? His life of sin left behind a lot of bad stuff. Family dysfunction, civil war, murder, the kingdom fell apart, right? So there are a lot of bad things that his sin led to. But one thing that Solomon built that remained for hundreds of years is the temple of God. And the temple of God was a place where God demonstrated that he was absolutely holy and he was also demonstrating through the sacrificial system that we needed sacrifices to come into the holy presence of God. So you learn in the temple system, in the sacrificial system, God is holy and perfect and we're not. And we need God's help. We need his sacrifices. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. That, that's the big lesson that we see in the temple. And so if we could sum up that big lesson of what Solomon leaves behind in his writings and in his buildings, I think the, the summary of that word would be repentance. The word repentance. Because we see a sinful life and then we see writings that says, hey, don't, don't do that. <laughs> That's a bad idea. And then we see this building, this temple that says, God is absolutely holy and you don't want to pursue sin. It's just going to cause death. It's just going to hurt you. Turn from your sin and come to God accepting the sacrifices that he offers for you. Repentance. So I think one of the things that this book will call us to is a life of repentance. Are you a repenter? Are you someone who recognizes that what I'm doing on my own is not enough? I have to turn from my own ways of saving myself and turn to God. One of the lessons of life being a mist and a vapor and a bubble that just pops is we recognize, sometimes through hitting rock bottom in our own life, that the things that we've invested in, the things that we've made treasure, 
and saviors and made hope and security in our life just fade. We think they're going to be beautiful, and maybe they're beautiful for a moment, but they're transient, and they pop, and we try to grab onto them, and they disappear. And so I think Solomon's writings, I think Solomon's life, and I think the temple that he left behind calls us to repentance. And it also points us to this true Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, who said he is the true temple. Jesus Christ said repeatedly throughout the New Testament, it's real explicit in the Gospel of John, but it's all throughout the New Testament, Jesus Christ was the real temple. And so Solomon built this physical place that was transient, right? It wasn't forever, but it was there for a few hundred years, and it showed the people that God is holy and we need sacrifices and forgiveness to come into his presence. Jesus said he's the permanent, he's the forever temple, he's the real temple, and so the, the mist and the vapor of that temporary, that temporary temple was supposed to help us to see the reality of Jesus Christ himself. So I want to ask you, number one, what are the temples that you're constructing in your life? As we go on through Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to challenge us that you can have a lot of success in life, and that can be something that helps you to see who God is, or it can be a false temple where you're worshiping a false god of success. And you're trying to grab onto a savior that's just like grasping after wind. It's just smoke. It's just bubbles. It's just mist. There's nothing substantial and permanent there. He talks about pleasure. He talks about learning. He talks about all these other things that can become false saviors, false temples. This book and our lives, our experiences, are going to call on us to repent, to turn from those things and say, I need the true God. Because these temporary things I'm trying to grab onto are not enough. They're not substantial. I need the true God. And that's what leads us to the end of the book where he says, ultimately, we all need to fear God and keep his commandments. So that takes us to the second point I have, which is, what's the point? (laughs) What's the main point of Ecclesiastes? It's a confusing book. Okay, it's poetry, it's riddles, um, it's philosophical argumentation. All of this stuff can be hard for us, right? Can be difficult, And so here's some Bible study tips. Focus in on the repeated phrases. Look at the introduction and the conclusion. And that can really help you kind of get the general framework of a book. So what are the repeated phrases? The repeated phrases are the one I started with, right? The havel. It's meaninglessness or futility or vanity. It's like everything is temporary. Everything is mist and, and vapor. And you can't really grab onto it. Again, that doesn't mean it's evil. It doesn't mean everything is evil. It means it's not enough. You need more. And so he says that repeatedly. And then another way he says this, as you follow these repeated phrases throughout the book, is he says, it's a grasping after the wind. So Hebrew poetry, a mark of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism, where they say a line one way, and then they repeat it in another way. And so what Hebrew poetry does is it rhymes ideas instead of rhyming sounds, which is really cool because it makes it the most translatable poetry in the world, right? Poetry in other cultures, we like to rhyme sounds and rhythms and stuff like that, but they take ideas, right? And so repeatedly it says, everything is havel, everything is mist and vapor, meaningless, vanity, futile, and the parallel to that is, it's a chasing after the wind. What does wind mean? Well, wind is wind, but it has a couple other meanings in Hebrew. It also means breath, right? Which is what keeps us alive, right? So would you say breath is evil? No, but it's never enough, is it? You always need more. 
If you have asthma, you especially know what that's like. I need more. I need, I need more air. I'm not getting enough air. We always need another breath. And so it's wind, it's breath, but also this is really interesting. And this matches in the Hebrew and the Greek. It's also spirit. It's spirit. So Jesus says this really interesting stuff when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, Nicodemus, you're, the, you're like the smartest guy in Israel and you don't, you don't have this figured out? You need to be born again. You need spiritual life. Jesus says the wind blows where it pleases. It does whatever it wants. When you need that wind to blow into your life, you need spiritual life. So there's these really interesting kind of riddle-like sayings that are repeated throughout the book to show us that there's something really valuable there, but what we're grasping at is not enough. It's going to leave us wanting more. It's going to push us to pursue God. Instead of pushing us away, the, the aim of this book is to, through struggle, through difficulty, push you to pursue God and recognize that what we're grabbing onto now in this life is not substantial. It's not enough. There's this one more phrase that's repeated again and again throughout the book, and it's under the sun. Under the sun. Everything's meaningless. Under the sun. There's nothing else to enjoy except for this. Under the sun. And when he says under the sun again and again, there's a few different ways to think about this. Because again, this is poetry and it's multi-layered. Um, but the primary meaning, I think, most of us would think is, I live on the ground and God's like up in heaven, right? That was kind of the ancient way of, of thinking about God. As, you know, he was out there in space and we're down here on the ground. And so that's kind of a symbolic way of thinking about we're here and we're not living in God's presence, right? He's away from us. There's a separation Another way that Zach Eswine, a professor, talks about this is he says, it's like the whole feeling of being locked out of paradise, right? Genesis 3 tells us that by our parents' first sin in the Garden of Eden, they were then shut out of paradise, and so we all live in that situation under the sun. Like, we're under the sun, we're not in paradise anymore, it's just the, the post-fall world we live in, the post-Eden ache that we all live in now. Then there's one more layer of meaning, I think, and that's time. Because the sun is how they told time in the ancient world, right? Now we use machines to tell time. But in the ancient world, they just looked at where the sun was in the sky, and that's how they knew what time it was. So we live bound by time. We live bound by time. So we're constrained. We have limitations as human beings. And again, that's not, that's not all evil. There's some gifts in that. And that's part of what makes this a kind of uh, delicate dance and a confusing thing as we pursue this. So the, the primary word that's repeated again and again is the things that we pursue in life are like a mist. They're like a vapor. They're not enough, like a bubble. You try to grab onto it. It's not substantial. It's not permanent. It's transient. But again, that doesn't mean it's all bad. My application question for you is, what is it you're trying to grab onto? What in this life are you thinking, if I can just 10 more feet, I'll grab that bubble, and then it's gone, Right? What is it that you're running after, you're pursuing? We're going to go on this journey with Solomon through Ecclesiastes, and he's going to take us through everything that you could pursue in this life short of God himself. And then he's going to come to the very end, as I said, Bible study method, look at the repeated phrases, look at the beginning, and then look at the end. What does he say at the end of the book? At the end, in chapter 12, he says, here's the end of the matter. What is there to do in life but fear God and keep his commandments? Now, fear God can, can be misunderstood. Think of it this way. What is your greatest fear? Is your greatest fear being without money? Th then what that means is that money is your God. Is your greatest fear being alone? Then that means relationship is your God. 
It's your greatest fear to be unsuccessful, then success is your God. So again and again, the Bible says, you know what? God should be your greatest fear. And in that sense, it's not like you're cowering before him, but you are in awe. And you see him as truly your only hope. And that's the end of the story. So Solomon says, as we go through life and we grab onto these bubbles and this mist and this vapor, and we see that it's not permanent, it doesn't satisfy, that drives us to see that the only thing that's really permanent and lasting in this life is God himself. That we should fear God and keep his commandments. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they they find rest in God himself. Or Pascal says, there's this God-shaped vacuum, right, within us. And the only thing that can really fill that is God himself. We're trying to cram mist and vapor and temporary things of this life into us, and and they're not enough. So verse 2 and 3 says, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Now, again, there's a nuance here. There's, there's some subtleties here. It reminds me of how the Apostle Paul talks about the law in the New Testament, right? The law, sometimes the New Testament is talked about in negative senses, right? Because if you're using the law, if you're grasping at the law as a way to perform before God, it's bad. It's not good at all. Yet, the law is good, right? It's the same thing here. Life is good. Solomon's going to say that repeatedly, and that's why it's kind of confusing. He's going to say, it, it's good to enjoy pleasure in life. That's a good thing. But if you're grasping after it as the thing that's really going to satisfy you, it's mist. It's a vapor, right? And so he's going to, again, apprentice us, take us through this, um, this journey where we recognize that the things in life that we're grasping onto are not enough, and it's going to drive us to pursue God, which leads us to the last point. Why study Ecclesiastes? Why do this to ourselves, Right? Why, why would we punish ourselves in this way? Those of you that are agnostic or artistic are like, hey, this is cool, I'm all in. But the rest of you are like, what are we doing, right? This is confusing, especially those of you that like clear black and white answers, right? I just want to say, I'm sorry, just hold on, okay? Hang with us. We'll get some really clear answers in chapter 12. This is going to be difficult. And so if you love clarity and if you love you know, thus saith the Lord, black and white, absolute, this is the way it is, this is going to make you nervous. But it's nervousness with a purpose. Francis Schaeffer was a great apologist in the 70s and 80s. That, that means he was, he was really good at helping people understand that Christianity makes sense. And he said, what you want to do when you're helping someone uh, to come to see the truth of Christianity is you want to kind of push them to go to the end of their current worldview and to see that their current worldview doesn't actually hold up. And so it can seem cruel, right? You're pushing them to the logical end of their worldview, you know, so that then you can say, how's that working out for you, right? And that's kind of the journey that we're going to be going on in Ecclesiastes. We're going to be pursuing these different worldviews and saying, how does this work? And how does this work? And is, is this enough? And is this enough? And the answer again and again is like, no, none of it is enough, which will bring us to chapter 12. The only thing that's left is fear God and keep his commandments, So I think one of the reasons that we need to study Ecclesiastes is, especially in this moment, we're in a place in time where people are sick and tired and cynical of easy answers, right? People are uh, not patient with clear, concise, black and white answers. We're in a a post-truth age, a lot of people say. And so just to, again, not to scare the black and white people, I believe in truth, okay? I believe in truth, but we kind of need to go down this journey 
this truth pursuit journey that recognizes uh, the difficulties in life, recognizes the complexities in life in order to get to truth. If we run to it too quickly, sometimes people that are doubting and questioning can't follow with us. And so what Ecclesiastes is going to do is it's going to make us slow down and be more patient with our friends that are asking hard questions. Are you all willing to do that with us for the next few weeks? That's my goal, that we would be a community where people who have serious questions would feel loved and listened to. So let's stop for a minute and listen to the text. I'm going to read again verses 4 through 11. Just let the, just kind of have a hippie moment here. Let the poetry wash over you, okay? Verse 4 through 11. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns and it cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Again, it's a little depressing, but it's depressing in a good way. He's pushing you to see the problem, right? You can't really recognize the glory of the solutions that God offers us unless you really grapple with the problem. Like, how empty is life? How futile is life? I love the phrase about how the sea is never full, right? The rivers are always flowing, but the ocean's never full. Our eyes are never full. We always want to see more. Our ears are never full. We always want to hear more. It's never enough. Again, it points back to that, that grasping that Pascal and Augustine talked about. We're all pursuing something more than what we can find in this life. And as we read this book, as we kind of slow down to be good listeners and good learners, Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Bible talks about in chapter 12, it says, really, this is all provided by one great shepherd, the good shepherd who loves us. Ultimately, we're apprenticing with him, and we're slowing down, and we're showing people with real questions and real problems the dignity that they deserve as people made in the image of God. We're saying, man, I may have already found hope in this world of futility, but I recognize that you're still searching. So I'm going to slow down and I'm going to go through the search with you. So I just want to encourage those of you that are like, I know the answer. I have faith. I trust in Jesus to say, we want to slow down and walk through the questioning with Solomon. And in that process, you're going to learn how to be a better neighbor and a better friend. You're going to learn how to slow down and pay attention and listen as your friends struggle and doubt. And, and in that process, we'll get better at leading each other to the source of hope that we have in Jesus. Sociologist named Charles Taylor says that this present moment, more than any other, is not just a post-truth age, but it's an age in which it seems ridiculous to even, to even consider that God exists. He talks about it as the imminent frame, and he's contrasting imminent, close, so there's like five different meanings of imminent, the close frame with the transcendent frame, right? Transcendence is God is out there, he's bigger than us, he exists, and imminent is I can only see what's right in front of me. And I think a really helpful illustration of this is the contrast between plays in a theater and movies. 
My daughter is uh, into drama. I just saw a play last night, and I was reminded again that it's just always harder for me to follow a play than it is a movie, right? The movie is like, look here, look here, look at this now, right? That's, that's how a movie is made. It's very tight photography, and it, the director in a movie shows you exactly what he wants you to see. He completely controls the environment. A drama, a live theater is a little more like Wild West, right? And what I've found is I really struggle to focus on the right thing unless there's a spotlight showing me where to look and directing my eyes, right? It's like the theater last night. There's like 20 people dancing on stage, you know, and they're like the best dancers up front who are singing, and you're supposed to focus on them, right? They're the leads, but I keep looking at like the weird things in the back of the room, in the corner, you know, I'm like, I'm looking here, I'm looking there. It's like, no, focus, 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 right? Well, well, we live in a world right now where all the focusing is being done for you. And you might miss that, right? You might miss that. And, and you, you don't recognize that the world is focusing you on the imminent frame and saying, this is all there is, this is all there is, this is all there is. And you don't even realize how that just everything in our culture is reinforcing that message and saying, just look here. Just look here. No, don't pay attention to anything above the sun. Just look here. Just focus. And so as we move through this book together, it's going to train us to focus here, but as we focus here, to be able to see that there's more, to recognize, oh, there's, there's other things out there. There are other things to pay attention to. God does exist. And this imminent frame, this close frame is, is not enough. It's like a grasping after wind. It's like Havel. It's like bubbles that are popping as I grab onto them. Eswan says the main point in this, in this story, in this wisdom, is not found until the end of the book, right? So we're, we're going to have to endure 11 chapters of riddles and poetry and art and weirdness and observations and creation and philosophical argumentation. We're going to have to endure all this before we can come to the answer, Right? 11 chapters of struggle and confusion. Now, just to give you a little hope, he's going to drop little bread crumbs of truth and joy along the way, right? So it's not going to be completely exasperating. He's going to drop little, little bread crumbs of life is good, enjoy it, right? There are these little, little glimmers of hope, just like our real life, right? Our real life is a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, and then one moment you're eating guacamole and you're like, everything is okay, right? <laughs> scooping that bluebell. Life is good. Why was I so sad yesterday, right? And so the book is like that. We're going to be like, I'm confused. I don't know. I don't understand this. Oh, this is cool. I like this, right? And then, okay, I'm confused again. And so it's going to kind of take us on this journey of asking questions, seeing the difficulties in life, but also getting little glimmers of hope along the way as it's taking us to that end of, you know what? In the end, the only thing left is to fear God and to obey his commandments. So what this is going to do as we follow along the book so it's going to help us to do this that I think is a good application for us just to start working on now. That is, number one, start paying attention to the world around you. Start paying attention to the world around you, being a better listener, a better attender to the reality in your midst, asking good questions, and not only doing that with the world around you, but the people around you. Start seeing, okay, God made this person in his image, and even though they doubt or even though they're weird, or even though I don't fully understand them, there's something for me to learn here, and you begin asking better questions, you begin paying attention, you kind of slow down, you attend to the, to the wisdom that is to be found here. Wisdom literature is great. There's this thing that happens in Proverbs where it's like, 
go to the ants, you sluggard, and become wise, right? Like, that, that doesn't sound like a typical sermon. Like, what if I came here next week to preach a sermon? I was like, okay, there's some ant piles outside. I want you to all go outside and just watch them for half an hour. That's going to be our sermon for the day, okay? But that's kind of the way wisdom literature operates. It says, observe, pay attention, ask some good questions, recognize the need that you have, and allow that to drive you to God. As you're seeing your hope pop, as your bubble in life is bursting, allow that pain, that anguish, to drive you to God, to recognize, man, he's, he's the only one that can really meet my needs. Slow down, ask good questions, seek the Lord, and he'll be faithful to us as we study this book. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship. God, we thank you. We thank you that you give us hard things to learn. We thank you that you give us hope. We thank you that you give us little pleasures in life that are just little boosts and little reminders that you are good and you are there. God, help us to see that this life is a gift from your hand, but also to see that it's not everything. And Father, that's such a hard balance because we want to swing hard one way or the other. We want to put all our eggs in this basket or we want to be completely hopeless. Just help us to have biblical wisdom. Help us to see that you are good that you love us. God, help us to pursue you through the difficulties of this life and end of this text. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.